appreciated. Isaiah 54, if we could stand for the reading of God's Word, and we're going to look at the first five verses of uh, the chapter this evening. All right? Verse 1 says, Sing, O barren, thou that didst not bear, break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent, and let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitations. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. For thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seed shall inherit the Gentiles, and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. Fear not, for thou shalt not be ashamed, neither be thou confounded, for thou shalt not be put to shame. For thou shalt forget the shame of thy youth, and shalt not remember the reproach of thy widowhood any more. For thy Maker is thine husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, the God of the whole earth, shall he be called. The title of our Bible study this evening is this, found in verse 2, Lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. We're going to pray in just a moment. Si estás hablando, por favor, puede ayudarme y no ser una distracción a la gente alrededor de ustedes, por favor. Gracias. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for the Word of God. We pray that you would help us to understand it. Lord God, drive these truths home down into our heart tonight and help us to leave here, Lord, um, uh, just um, more in love with you, more in love with the Bible, with a deeper understanding of God, how we can better please you with our lives. You've done so much for us. You made us, and then you died on the cross to redeem us. And Lord, each one here today that has put their faith and trust in you, we, we are owned by you twice. And Lord, you deserve our loyalty. You deserve our our love. You deserve our, uh, Lord, our our hearts. And so, Lord, help us to walk uh, in, in your love and walk in your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. All right, Isaiah 54, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. I've got a lot to say tonight, and I don't have a long time to say it in. On the back of your bulletin there, you'll find our outline. I gave you half the outline. The other half we saved for next week. We'll see if we make it all the way through this far, Brother Manny, and get through the first two points. So let's just jump right in here and seek to understand the passage. And I'm going to explain what lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes means in greater detail in just a moment. Let's jump in here. Notice number one, a proclamation to rejoice. A proclamation to rejoice. Now, Isaiah 53, we spent, uh, I think, three weeks going through Isaiah 53. And we saw how that this was a prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus Christ several hundred years before the art of crucifixion had ever even been invented. In fact, back when Isaiah wrote this chapter, the way of capital punishment, or rather, yes, capital punishment was stoning someone to death. That was the way people were punished who had broken laws on the level that deserved death. And um, Isaiah did not prophesy that there would be a stoning of the Messiah, but rather that there would be a crucifixion. That's the description in Isaiah 53, that a Messiah would come and suffer. He would be a suffering servant. Then we turn our attention to chapter number 54, and we see the very first word in there is the word sing. Sing. Um, isn't that interesting that, I, I, that Israel is told 
to sing. Uh, right after we see this idea of the Lord Jesus, or rather of the Messiah, being killed. Now, I just want to say this evening that I... Um, I have a song in my heart that comes pouring out all the time. Uh, whether I'm in the shower or I'm driving down the road or wherever I am, whatever I'm doing, there's a song that's just alive in my heart. And I'm not singing Taylor Swift or Mariah Carey. I'm singing songs about the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm singing about the one who died for me and uh, uh, the one who purchased me with uh, his, uh, his death and resurrection. And, and, and that song just comes pouring out of my mouth as I stop and think about what Jesus went through on the cross while it does grieve my heart to think that they drove the nails into his hands and his feet because of my sin, and they beat his back, they laid stripes on his back because of my sin, and uh, they pushed the crown of thorns down into his skull because of my sin. While those things grieve me at that thought, I am also rejoice and I sing because I know that I know what it means to be redeemed, to have my sins forgiven. And that drives a song into my heart. So when I look at that word sing, this is not a doctrinally deep truth, but when I look at that word sing, found right there in chapter 54, I'll tell you what I see. I see that we have a reason to sing, do we not? Because Jesus died for us and He rose from the dead. I know I've picked on people plenty uh, over the years for this, but when we have song time in church, especially on Sunday morning, when the auditorium is full, whether you're upstairs in the early service or you're in here for this service, and we open up our hymnals or we look to the screen for the words and we're singing about the Lord and all He's done for us and I look out and I see someone standing there and they're not singing. I think, are you saved? Did Jesus uh, take, take your sins away? Do you know what it means to be on your way to heaven? Then open your mouth and sing. And someone says, well, I don't have a good voice. Well, then make a joyful noise unto the Lord, all ye lands. Just make a, a great noise and you know what? You'll blend right in and it'll all be okay. But there ought to be a song in your heart. I find it fascinating that with a lot of young people, they are wrapped up in the music of the world and when you want to sing about the Lord, there's just not much coming out of their lips. But then as soon as you turn on something that glorifies sex or sin or self or drugs, all of a sudden now uh, there's a song that leaps off their lips. And I'm not a slave. I'm not a servant to the devil. I'm rather a servant of the Lord Jesus who purchased me. And so I'm going to sing and I'm going to sing out. Letter A, let's look at an understanding of these verses, especially that verse to strengthen, uh, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. Let's look at letter A. Let's look at the interpretation. Let's understand the interpretation of this passage. First, look back with me at verse number 1, and let's read down through verse number 3 here. All right? Verse number 1. Sing, O barren, O barren, thou that didst not bear... Break forth into singing and cry aloud, thou that did, didst not travail with child. For more are the children of the desolate than the children of the married wife, saith the Lord. Enlarge the place of thy tent. Let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not. Lengthen thy cords and strengthen thy stakes, for thou shalt break forth on the right hand and on the left, and thy seeds shall inherit uh, the Gentiles and make the desolate cities to be inhabited. What in the world is that even talking about? 
Well, I did some digging and some studying, and I believe that there is an interpretation of this passage that is very direct, and then there are some applications that can be made. I'm going to tell you, growing up in a Baptist church, I've heard Isaiah 54 too preached a handful of times, and it was always taken out of context. And so that made it a little bit tougher for me to get down to what this actually means. And we need to remember, first and foremost, Isaiah was writing to the Israelites. We have a habit as American Christians to read the Bible through the scope of America. And the Bible was not written with America in mind. It was not written with the Gentiles first in mind. It was written with the Israelites in mind. So Isaiah is an Israeli prophet speaking to the nation of Israel right a few hundred years or a hundred so years before they would go into Babylon, Babylonian captivity. And so we need to keep that in context. What does it mean by uh, broaden or rather lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes? I get this visual of people who are huddled under a tent and the tent needs to be made wider so that uh, yet the people who continue to come can fit. And so they're, they're crowded in under the tent and all of a sudden now we're, we're lengthening the cords, we're strengthening the stakes, we're making broader the tent so more people can come under. What is that talking about? Well, look with me at Joshua chapter number 1. Joshua 1 and verse number 4. If you could turn over there for me, hold your place in Isaiah 54 and look at Joshua chapter number 1 and verse number 4 with me. Joshua 1. And verse number 4. So, the Israelites are known as having been barren in the very beginning. You may remember the story of Abraham and Sarah. Sarah is in her uh, late 60s, early 70s. And God says to Abraham, hey, I want you to get up and go to land that I'm going to show you. And I'm going to give you a baby and I'm going to turn that baby into a great nation. And so Abraham or Abram and Sarai at the time later their names are changed to Abraham and Sarah. They get up and they go to the land that God is showing them. And when Sarah turns 90 years old, God opens up her womb and miraculously gives her a baby post-menopause. And that child is named uh, Isaac or laughter. She was so excited about it. She named him Laughter. And so the barren womb here reference is speaking of uh, Sarah and how that Israel was that barren womb who now is a great land. Joshua chapter 1 verse 4, here God is telling Joshua uh, of the land that they are to conquer and inhabit. It says, from the wilderness and this Lebanon... Even under the great river, the river Euphrates, and so if you look at that on a map, that's north to south. All right, um, look here, all the land of the Hittites, and under the great sea toward the going down of the sun, shall be your coast. Um, so what's that talking about? That's east to west. So north to south and east to west. What is this a measurement of? This is a measurement of the land that Israel was to inhabit. If you go and you look at that on a map and you measure, that is approximately 300,000 square miles. Now, to get an idea of the size of 300,000 square miles, Connecticut is 5,000 square miles. All right? You getting an idea here? The state of Texas is approximately, um, let's see here, 270,000 square miles. So this is 30,000 square miles larger than the state of Texas. 
That's the amount of land that God told Joshua Israel was to inhabit. Now, Israel at its zenith, at its peak, under Solomon, only inhabited 30,000 of the 300,000 square miles. So they have never, ever inhabited all the land that God promised to them. They've only inhabited, at their greatest, one-tenth of that land. So, when the Bible talks about in verses, uh, let's see, 1, 2, and 3, go back there with me, look at verse 2, "...enlarge the place of thy tent." And let them stretch forth the curtains of thine habitation. Spare not, lengthen thy cords, and strengthen thy stakes. If you look at the Israeli state right now, it's Jew living next to Gentile. Uh, the, you have the Dome of the Rock, right, where you have uh, uh, yet Islam present, right where the Temple Mount used to be. And it's going to be difficult for that to come down so the Temple can go back up. That's what the Antichrist is going to one day be able to accomplish, the tearing down of the Dome of the Rock or the converting of the Dome of the Rock into a temple, however that happens, I, I, I don't know that. I don't think anyone really knows that. But right now you have Jew living next to Gentile. In fact, the uh, nation of Israel right now inhabits a very small sliver. There's arguing over the West Bank, and there's the, the Palestinian order that seems to be at war with the Israelites, and there's constantly uh, a, 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 a strife over there, and uh, you've got all that going on. Well, one day when King Jesus sets up shop, and he rules and reigns from Jerusalem, Jerusalem for a thousand years, you know what's going to happen is they're going to, uh, the Jews are going to be all invited back home and they're going to inhabit all 300,000 of those square miles and the Gentiles are going to be forced to leave and live outside of that space and they're going to inhabit the barren cities. They're going to take over those cities. The, the cords will be uh, uh, lengthened. The, stake, the, 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 the stakes will be strengthened and what will happen is that you'll have Israel back where they ought to be. So that is the interpretation. Now, let's make some applications. Letter B, notice some applications. All right? Notice first we have an application about the gospel commission. The gospel commission. Now, when Jesus came to Jerusalem uh, way back at the beginning of AD, uh, beginning in, by the way, the calendar revolves around the Lord Jesus Christ. You ever want to get on the nerves of an atheist? Just be a pester. Ask him what year it is, and ask him who the calendar uh, revolves around. All right, revolves around Jesus. Okay, and so he was such a great figure in history that the calendar ceased. Uh, it counted down to his birth, and it's counted up from his birth. And they tried to change it from BC to BCE and uh, AD, and they tried to change it, the meaning of all that, but. All that said, it still comes down to the calendar shifted when Jesus was born. And that's how we know it to be. Well, where was Jesus born? He was born to uh, uh, the Jews. He was born in Bethlehem, a, a, a suburb there of Jerusalem. And uh, he lived his life and ministered to the lost sheep of Israel. In fact, a Syrophoenician woman or a Gentile woman came to him asking for help with a demon-possessed daughter. And he said... Uh, uh, it's not uh, for me to give meat to the dogs. He's calling her a dog. You say, well, that seems a little inappropriate. Well, there's a lesson being taught there. She did not mind the name calling. She stayed after him. And Jesus ended up healing her daughter and blessing her. But why was he so hesitant to help her? Because Jesus did not come directly to minister to the Jews. 
He did, however, rather, he only came to minister to the Jews. He did not come to minister to the Gentiles. However, he did command his disciples when he ascended to heaven to lengthen the cords with the gospel and strengthen the stakes and take the gospel outside of Jerusalem everywhere. Look with me at Matthew chapter 28, and we see what Jesus tells his disciples there in verse number 19 and verse number 20. I'll go ahead and read it. Go ye therefore and teach... All nations. There is the lengthening of the cords and the strengthening of the stakes. The gospel is not just for the Jews. The gospel is to go to all nations. Uh, uh, we're going to finish reading that in just a moment. But Mark 6.15, we get the same command. Go ye into all the world. All the world. All the cosmos. Every corner of the globe. Back in Matthew 28.19, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. That's why we baptize in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Because Jesus commanded us to, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always. Even at the end of the world, amen. So the gospel did not just stay under the tent of Jerusalem. No, it expanded outward to Samaria. And then it expanded outward to the entire world. And now here we are today in Stratford, Connecticut, USA in 2023, where the majority of us, if not all of us in here, are Gentiles. And what are we doing? We're living under the tent of the gospel. Is that what Isaiah 54 meant when it talked about lengthening the cords and strengthening the stakes? That is not the interpretation, but it is an application, not only the Great Commission, but notice a growing church, a growing church. Look with me at Matthew chapter 16. You're in Matthew 28. Turn over just a couple of pages there to Matthew chapter 16 and verse number 18. Matthew chapter 16 and verse 18. And verse number 19, you know the story here. Uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples and he asks them, Who do you think I am earlier in the chapter? And Peter says, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And, and he says, Flesh and blood have not revealed this to thee, but my Father. And then we get down to verse 18. Jesus is speaking here. He says, And I say unto thee, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Let me take just a couple minutes and take these verses apart and talk about the uh, the lengthening of the cords and the strengthening of the stakes as it comes to the church. Many Baptists have a hard time with that, thou art Peter and upon this rock, right? The Catholic Church uh, loves this verse because they say Peter is the first pope right here. See, he was made to be the leader of the church. And they, they, they love this verse. And Baptists usually, let me show you how most Baptists read this verse. So right here it goes. Um, and I say to thee, thou art Peter upon this rock, I will build my church. They just went over that first half of the verse, all right? But the, we can't skip. It's all there for a reason, and we need to make sure we understand it. God took Simon and changed his name to Peter, which means little stone, little pebble, all right? In Spanish, the name would be Pedro or Pedrito. And that, uh, listen, Peter was a part of the foundation of the church. There is no questioning that. Uh, we ought not question that. Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Let me be clear on that. 
Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The apostles tell us, the Bible tells us, the apostles helped make up the foundation of the church. Peter was the leader of the apostles. In fact, the first half of the book of Acts lays out for us Peter's work in getting the church established. The second half of the book of Acts shows us how that everything Peter did, Paul did also to the Gentiles. What Peter did for the Jews... Paul was able to do for the Gentiles. And so both Peter and Paul were lively stones. And you know what though? Peter has gone on to glory and the next generation came along and they helped to be the next layer of that building of the church. And then the next generation came along and they became the next layer of the church. And here we are, 2,000 years removed, and we're yet still adding layers to the church. And you know what's happened? The, 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 the cords have been lengthened. The stakes should be strengthened as the church continues to go and to grow. Now, I want you to notice here in verse number 18. Notice it says here, Jesus says, I will build my church. You know who doesn't build the church? The pastor does not build the church. So I put my money in the offering plate and that's the pastor's job to make sure that people get followed up on and loved on. And, uh, you know, if the church grows, then, uh, you know, maybe we give the pastor a raise. If the church grows, then, you know, maybe we, uh, we, uh, we talk about how wonderful our pastor is. But if the church shrinks, and oh man, our pastor, he's not doing a very good job. It's not the pastor's job to build the church. It's just not. Look at verse 18. Jesus didn't say, and the pastor will build my church. It said, I will build my church. All right, confession time, all right? Um, I'm not, uh, you know, a parishioner and you're not a priest, but I'm going to confess all the same. All right, here we go. My first three years as pastor, I was very frustrated. I've been here, this month will be seven years. You know why I was frustrated? Because the church wasn't growing numerically. It just wasn't. We were just holding steady. You know, we were adding people. Some people were coming. Some people were going. And man, I am just killing myself. Pulling 50, 60, 70 hour work weeks. And uh, just giving it my all. And, and exhorting and encouraging and doing all I can. And Man, I got here in 2016 and I thought by 2020 we're going to be running 600 in attendance. That's really what I believed. When I got to 2020, you know what we were running in attendance? The same we were running in 2016. And I was working it. I mean, I was really working it. You don't have a lazy pastor. I can promise you that much. Boy, I really do. I put in a lot of work. And for me, it's a balance to make sure I give my wife and kids the time that they need. I'm aware of that. And I really try to do those things. But when I'm here, I'm working. And um, I'm working late into the night many nights. And uh, I do a lot to to help the church to grow. But can I tell you what God had to teach me those first three or four years? I will build my church. Not Pastor Lejeune will build my church. Then how does church growth work? How do we then grow? Some churches grow and some churches shrink. Some churches become mega churches and other churches dwindle into nothing. And let me be very careful here. We don't need to take shots at large churches. Alright? God uses churches of all sizes. Churches that run 20, 15, 20. And churches that run fifteen to 20,000. There's a church over in South uh, Korea that I think they run in excess of thirty or 40,000 on Sunday morning. All right? Massive church. 
Massive churches. Uh, listen, God can use any church, big or little. What's the old hymn say? Little is much when God is in it. Right? And God can use any church of any size. But how does a church get big? Well, listen, there's a good way to grow a church and there's a bad way to grow a church. I think churches that grow uh, big and strong and are healthy churches that please the Lord, here's what I think they do. I think that they get out of the way, they humble themselves before God, they get on their knees and they pray, they do their very best to be godly and unified, they love each other, they love the Lord, and you know what happens? It's like a water hose that's hooked up to the, the source you know, you turn that thing on. You ever, you ever, you know, screw the hose into the, the, the source there on the outside of your house, the spigot, I guess it's called, and you turn that water on, and you go down to the other end of the hose, and you get drip, 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 and you think, what's going on here? And you walk down, and you look, and you got a kink here, and so you, you know, you untwist the hose, and drip, 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 and you go down, and oh, there's another kink, and you know, you get that, and then you go a little further, and part of the hose is stuck under the tire of the car. Does that ever happen to you? That happens to me sometimes, right? And so you, you, you yank it out from underneath the tire and you get that twisted out. And all of a sudden, when you get all the kinks out of the hose, boy, the water just comes rushing out of the other end of the hose. And I think there's a whole lot of churches, what they're trying to do is through pride and through power and through carnality and through living in the flesh, they're trying to build the biggest church in the world. And God says, I don't need you to be all that. I build my church. I'll tell you what I need you to do. I need you to get that knot of sin out of your life. I need you to come over here and I need you to get in line with each other and love the brethren and, and be in unity with each other. And I need you to come over here and I need you to tell people about Jesus for me. And I tell you what, over here I need you to give money so that missionaries around the globe, uh, listen, we take care of God's call around the globe, all of a sudden He starts to take care of us here at home. And then you get all these kinks out of the hose and the source, which is the Lord, sends growth running right through that hose and boom, we take off and start growing. You know what we need to do? We need to deal with personal sin. We need to deal with pride. If you're not getting along with someone in this church, you have a pride problem. If I'm not getting along with someone in this church, I have a pride problem. Well, I don't like the way he looked at me. Can I just say this as nice and humbly as I can? Get over yourself. I don't like the way she texted me or talked to me. Well, who made you, you know, the queen of the universe? If I had a casket sitting right here, there's a dead body in that casket, I could walk up and I could call that dead body every name under the sun. That would be disrespectful, but I could do it. And you know what's not going to happen? That dead person's not going to get offended at a single thing I say. Because they're dead. And you know what? The Bible says we're to die daily to our flesh. We're to mortify the deeds of the flesh so the Spirit of God can come along and He can quicken our bodies to do His work. And you know what? If you're dead to self, you're not getting offended over anything anyone says or does your direction. And when you get a church body, the body of Christ, uh, the local body of Christ, the church, you get a church body to be humble and surrender to God, all of a sudden you get the kinks out of that hose and all of a sudden God begins to send growth to a church and it takes off and grows. You show me a church that's growing and growing in a godly way, I'll show you a church who's humble and unified with each other in the Lord. They're loving God and they're loving others just as they ought to. You say, well, pastor, I can't help but be offended the way some people treat me and act. 
And I would say to you, I get it, but listen, uh, uh, you are to take those offenses to God and you're to lay them down at His feet. And I would encourage you to come back Sunday morning. I was working on my Sunday morning sermon today talking about how to restore someone who is who you have offended or has offended you. We're going to be looking at that command of Christ uh, this uh, coming Sunday out of Matthew chapter 5 about hatred and where that hatred comes from and how it is manifested and, and, and not to preach Sunday morning sermon but uh, uh, how God prefers that we work, rather that we uh, uh, fix things with people who we have offenses with than that we worship Him. And how worship can only be pure in those ways. And so God wants our church to strengthen, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. And we do that by confessing sin. And we do that by living our lives for God and for others. So we see, number one, a proclamation to rejoice. And by the way, when you grow, there are sure is plenty to rejoice over. Number two, we see a period of rebuke. A period of rebuke. Go with me back to Isaiah 54. And let's look at verses 7, 8, and 9. 7, 8, and 9. And we'll look at verse 5 and 6 next week. But look with me at 7, 8, and 9. The Bible says here, for a small moment, God is speaking to Israel here, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. In a little wrath I hid my face from thee for a moment, but not with everlasting kindness will I, or rather, but with everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord thy Redeemer. Look at 9. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee, nor rebuke thee. Notice letter A. Notice Israel's adultery. Israel's adultery. Look back with me at verse number 7. While you're writing that down, I'll read it for you. It says, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Um, why would God forsake Israel? That seems like an odd thing for God who is immutable, meaning a God who never changes. Why would He do that? Have you ever felt like God has forsaken you? Have you ever been going through your life and just felt like maybe God was ignoring you? You're praying and, you know, it's like your prayers aren't being heard. Or you're uh, going through a hardship and it's almost like God's turned a deaf ear your direction. you ever felt that way? Well, here God says through Isaiah that for a small moment have I forsaken thee. What would cause God to do that? Turn over to Hosea chapter number 2 with me. Hosea is to the right. If you're in Isaiah, just a handful of books to the right there in the minor prophets. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, Hosea, Joel, Amos, Obadiah, Jonah, Micah, Habakkuk. Somewhere down there. Keep going. You'll find it. Hosea chapter 2. Verse number 1. If you're using a Bible app, then it's really easy, right? You just bam, 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 and three clicks and you're there. Hosea chapter 2. I recommend you bring your Bible to church. But if you, a Bible app will get you through in a pinch, won't it? Hosea chapter 2. Here in Hosea, we find the story of an analogy God gives. It's a beautiful story. God tells his prophet Hosea, I want you to go marry a harlot, a prostitute. Go find a woman who is a harlot and marry her. So he marries a woman named Gomer. What a name. 
Let's see here. Anybody going to name their kid Gomer? I don't know any. I don't know that I've ever met anyone named Gomer. Right? You guys didn't consider Gomer when you named her Araya, did you? How about the Maguires? Was Gomer on the table when you're looking at Danielle? Gomer was never on the table. Okay. So Gomer. He marries a woman named Gomer, and they have some kids together. And then Gomer decides she wants to go back to her harlotry. And uh, he, she just breaks Hosea's heart. All of this is a parallel for how God feels toward Israel when Israel cheated on God with idolatry. Look at verse number 1, and we see a double meaning of this passage. This is Hosea talking about Gomer. This is also God speaking about Israel. Say ye unto your brother and Ami, unto uh, your sister Ruhamah, verse 2, Plead with your mother, plead, for she is not my wife. Neither am I her husband. Let her therefore put away her whoredoms out of her sight and her adulteries from between her breasts, lest I strip her naked and set her as in the day that she was born. Make her as a wilderness and set her like a dry land and slay her with thirst. I will not have mercy upon her children, for they be the children of whoredoms. For their mother hath played the harlot. She she that conceived... Them hath done shamefully, for she said, I will go after my lovers that give me my bread and my water, my wool and my flax, mine oil and my drink. So these these uh, pimps are giving her a, a luxurious lifestyle. Verse 6, Therefore, behold, I will hedge up thy way with thorns and make a wall, and uh, that she shall not find her paths, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them, and she shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, for then it was better with me than now. For she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold while they prepared for Baal. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I discover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also uh, cause all of her mirth to cease, her feast days. Think about Israel. Her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and her solemn feasts. Think about their captivity. Think about them being scattered abroad and no celebration in Jerusalem. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. Whereof she hath said, These are my rewards that my lovers have given to me. And I will give them a forest, and the beasts of the fields shall eat them. Verse 13, And I will visit upon the days of Balaam. Wherefore she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. What happened here? Israel, cheating on God with idols and idolatry and sinful living, the same exact way that Gomer was cheating on Hosea. Turn over to Exodus 32. When did Israel begin cheating on God? When? Well, right at the marriage. Right when they got married. 
right while the Ten Commandments were being given to Moses on Mount Sinai. Imagine that you are all ready for your wedding day, sir, and while you're at the reception for your wedding, you can't find your wife, and you come to find out she's in a side room cheating on you with one of your groomsmen. That's how God feels in Exodus 32. He's up in the mount giving the Ten Commandments to Moses, and the Israelites are down at the base of the mount worshiping a false idol, cheating on God with his idol. Instead of worshiping him, thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Right down at the base of the mountain, they are building a golden calf, and they're making a god before them. Breaking the very first of the commandments. Look at Exodus 32. Look at verse number 7. God's up there giving the commandments to Moses, and he has to abruptly stop. And the Lord said unto Moses, Go, get thee down for thy people. Notice God, he doesn't say for our people or for my people. He says for thy people. Have you ever uh, been talking to your spouse and one of your kids are misbehaving and you say your son or your daughter, right? It's not our son or our daughter. It's your son, your daughter. God doesn't say for our people to Moses or my people. He says for thy people. Verse 7, which thou broughtest out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way which I commanded them. They have made them a molten calf and have worshipped it and have sacrificed thereunto and said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which have brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said unto Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now let me alone that my wrath may wax hot against them and that I may consume them. There's the jealousy. And I will make of thee, Moses, a great nation. And Moses besought the Lord his God and said, Lord, why doth thy wrath wax hot against thy people, which thou hast brought forth out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? And Moses is able to talk God out of destroying all of the Israelites for their wickedness. You know what Israel had done? From the very beginning, they had played the adulteress. And it didn't stop. It didn't stop. You may remember that they get to Kadesh Barnea and they're getting ready to cross into the promised land and they look at the giants in the land and they say, we be not able. Ten of the, ten of the spies said, we can't. Two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb said, we can. And they ended up being turned away to wander in the wilderness for 39 and a half more years until that generation died and the younger generation came up. They march into the promised land. They conquer the promised land and the, the book of Joshua. And in Judges chapter number 2, there rose a generation that forgot the, the, uh, the Lord and, and they turned to idolatry right back into whoredoms right back into adultery, right back into idolatry, and they see this cycle that happens through the book of Judges where they repent and they're restored, and then they rebel, and then they're rebuked, and then they repent, and they're restored, and they're rebuked, and then they repent. And round and round and round they go, falling into adultery and idolatry again and again and again. And God is done with it! And so why does the Lord, and back in Isaiah 54, verse 7, say, why does the Bible say that He had forsaken? Go back to verse 7. Isaiah 54. For a small moment have I forsaken thee. Can I tell you that that takes quite a God 
to be able to deal with adultery on this level for this length of time and say, just for a small moment have I forsaken thee. No doubt in a room this size or people watching online, someone's been cheated on sexually somewhere along the way. You want nothing to do with the other party once you've been cheated on. Oh, the the embarrassment and the shame and the hurt and the jealousy and the rage that runs through your body. And God said, only for a moment have I forsaken thee. Only for a moment. I believe we're living in that time where God has forsaken Israel. God is primarily right now working through the church. The Gentile church. There's a remnant of Israelites who are saved, who believe, but the majority of Israel wants nothing to do with Jesus. They deny that Jesus is the Messiah. They deny that Jesus was the coming of Christ. They're still looking for their Messiah. They follow their Talmud more than they do the Torah. And uh, the, the commentary on the Torah means more to them than the actual Torah. And it will be that way until the end of the tribulation where Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 14, where they see the one coming from the sky whom they have pierced and they weep and they embrace him. They're living in a time of being forsaken, but in the grand scheme of eternity, it is just for a moment. Letter B, we see Isaiah's analogy. We saw Israel's adultery. Next, we see Isaiah's analogy. Look back at verse number 7. We're going to wrap it up here, then we'll jump into points 3 and 4 and finish out the chapter next week. Verse number 7, For a small moment have I forsaken thee, but with great mercies will I gather thee. Look at the analogy here. In the little wrath I, I hid my face from thee for a moment. With everlasting kindness will I have mercy on thee, saith the Lord. Here's the analogy. For this is as the waters of Noah unto me. For I, as I have sworn that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so have I sworn that I would not be wroth with thee nor rebuke thee. Turn over to Genesis 6. We'll finish here. Genesis 6, you may remember that God made Adam and Eve way back in the Garden of Eden and and, um, Cain killed Abel, their first two children, and so they started over and they had Seth and several more children and then the earth began to populate and to grow and um, uh, the population rather begin to populate, uh, rather begin to grow, and uh, they grew to a place. By the time you get to Genesis six, two thousand years from Adam and Eve, uh, and the land is quite populous, but there are ve- they are very wicked, and it gets to a place where mankind, verse two, has chosen wicked marriages that have brought about superhumans, and God is fed up with his creation. Look at verse 5, Genesis 6. And God saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every imagination of the thought of his heart was only evil continually, and it repented the Lord. Look at verse 6. It repented the Lord that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him at his heart. God looks down at his humanity and goes, I'm sorry I ever even went down and formed Adam with my hands and formed Eve out of the side of Adam. I'm sorry that I ever did it. I wish I had never done it. I repent that I've done that. Verse 7, And the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and the creeping things and the fowl of the air, for it repenteth me that I have made them. But Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Turn over to chapter 9. Chapter 9, verse 1. And we know in the interim between six, chapter 6, verse 8 and chapter 9, verse 1, that Noah builds an ark made out of gopher wood, pitched 
uh, within and without, and uh, two of every kind of animal come on the boat, and Adam, uh, rather uh, Noah and his wife, Noah and Mrs. Noah, and, and Shem, him, and Japheth, and their three wives get on the boat, eight, eight people, and, and then a flood comes that covers the earth, waters from above, waters from below, covers all the planet earth, destroys all living things on earth, and then once the waters subside, the door of the boat is open, and they come off the boat. Look at chapter 9, verse 1, and God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. And so what's the analogy here? Back in, uh, back in Isaiah 54, verse uh, 7, 8, and 9, God uh, is reminding Israel that, yes, I'm going to punish you, but I'm only going to give you this severe punishment once, and after that I will punish you no more. I will punish you no more. This is leading us to talk about Next week, we've looked at, uh, let's see, we looked at, what was point number one? I, I got my notes here. A proclamation to rejoice, and we looked at a rebuke, right? A period of rebuke. This rebuke leads us into next week where we talk about a promise of restoration. Isaiah 54 is a promise of restoration to Israel, that while they're walking in this time of rebuke, there's going to come a day of restoration that will be complete, and the rebuke will be put to rest and will be no more. We're going to look at the rest of the chapter in great detail next week. I hope that you'll be here. I hope you'll make every effort to come. And I hope, indeed, that this will challenge you and help you to grow. Let's stand this evening and we'll pray to be sent forth and serve our Savior. Let's be faithful. Let's be humble servants of God that do our very best to please our Savior and love our neighbor. Amen? Let's pray this evening. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for its truth. Thank you that we get a chance to open up uh, an Old Testament ancient passage and find wonderful truths that apply to us day in and day out. Help us in our own lives to uh, lengthen the cords and strengthen the stakes. May we be busy giving the gospel of Jesus Christ to anyone and everyone that will listen. And we do pray, Lord, uh, that uh, folks would continue to be reached through our ministry. Lord, that uh, folks who are... Uh, in a bad spot in life, would uh, would find the truth of the gospel and be healed. Lord, that addicts would be made whole. And uh, Lord, that uh, lonely people would be given uh, comfort and hope. And Lord, the lost would find salvation. Help us, Lord, to be men and women of great compassion. May we serve our community with compassion in our heart and in our eyes. Bless us, Lord, in Jesus' name we pray.